Welcome to All Things Cardio-Oncology. My name is Steve Caselli. I'm the Executive Director of ICOS. And in this podcast, you'll hear from a diverse representation within our community. We want you to be both informed and inspired by their stories and experiences. And we're so glad that you've joined us today. I want to welcome uh, my co-host today, Dr. Daniel Lenahan. Dan is the founder, past president, and current executive consultant for ICOS. And it's always great to have Dan uh, part of these episodes. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Steve. I always love to hear about uh, all the great efforts around the world. Uh, Today will be another interesting uh, episode in cardio-oncology. Yeah, and one of the exciting things that's happened over the last couple of years in our organization is the formation of specialized working groups. Um, And today we have the opportunity to hear from the co-chairs of our exercise work group. So we're glad to have with us uh, Dr. Aaron Howden. Aaron is head of the Human Integrative Physiology Lab and the co-lead of the Physical Activity Program at Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne, Australia. So Aaron, thanks for staying up late and joining us. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And uh, Dr. Scott Adams is the other co-chair of this working group. Uh, Dr. Adams is an assistant scientist at Toronto General Research Hospital and Research Institute, and he is the exercise lead at the Ted Rogers Cardiotoxicity Prevention Program in Toronto, Canada. Scott, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you all for having Well, one of the things that uh, we always enjoy doing as part of this program is we we love to hear sort of a little bit about your each of your backgrounds. And so I'd love to hear sort of uh, how you got to where you are. What are some of your current interests, how you developed your interest in uh, cardio oncology and in particular? And then um, love to hear from each of you how you developed your interest in exercise as, as a therapeutic agent. So, Aaron, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Thanks, Steve. Um, so, my background is that I'm an exercise physiologist. Um, I completed a PhD back in 2012 at the University of Queensland um, in uh, chronic kidney disease where we we're trying to prevent cardiac dysfunction with uh, exercise and lifestyle interventions. Um, after I wrapped up my PhD, I was lucky enough to spend four years in Texas at the Institute for Exercise and Environmental Medicine in um, Ben Levine's lab. And here I was um, involved in conducting some really um, incredible exercise training studies where we um, took um, people who were at risk for heart failure and trained them for two years, um, trained them with high-intensity interval training And we looked at how this affected their cardiac compliance and the stiffness of their heart. And um, these studies um, were really transformational in showing that exercise, if it could be adhered to, could actually prevent um, age-related cardiac stiffening occurring. And this is really important for heart failure prevention, um, especially heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Following on from my postdoc training in the US, I I moved back to Australia to the Baker Institute and um, started working with uh, Professor Professor Andre Lagursh, who had an interest in cardio-oncology. And our group 
um, was really interested in trying to use the exercise medicine approaches that I'd used in other clinical populations in um, cancer patients. Um, and our group is very focused on trying to intervene very early in um, the trajectory of the cancer patient. So when the patient is still receiving treatment or undergoing treatment, using exercise in a personalised way to try and prevent any um, cardiotoxicity and ultimately prevent heart failure in these individuals. Well, that's uh, super interesting. This uh, is such an interesting area. Really look forward to hearing more from you on this. Scott, tell us a little bit about your background, how you developed your interests. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm uh, like, like the introduction said, I'm currently working at uh, the Toronto General Hospital Research Institute. Uh, my story started, uh, I'll, I'll start my story a little earlier than Aaron did. Um, back uh, in the ma- at the master's level, um, we were we, I was working clinically at the time at the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal, the Siegel Cancer Center there. And we were developing our oncology rehab program. Um, and we noticed aberrant cardiovascular responses in our patients, irregular like heart rate responses, sweating pattern responses. And when it came time to putting my master's together, um, we tried to find a common thread for what might be helping to explain why we're seeing what we're seeing. And we thought of looking at the autonomic nervous system. Uh, and exploring the the impact of treatment on autonomic function. Um, And then we quickly realized that the literature was kind of all over the place. There was a bunch of poorly controlled studies uh, done to that point um, that didn't account for many established confounders of autonomic functions. So uh, we did a pilot study looking to see if it was feasible to collect robust autonomic data in patients who were receiving uh, who received receiving up to four cycles of chemotherapy. Um, from there, we went, or I, we, um, me and all of my other personalities, from there we went to um, Edmonton. And I, I started my PhD in the behavioral medicine lab of Dr. Kerry uh, Kernier, um, who's a Canada Research Chair in Physical Activity and uh, Cancer. My doctoral work focused on high-intensity interval training in uh, testicular cancer survivors. Now, this group is not a typical cardio-oncology population, but they definitely have some increased uh, uh, cardiovascular disease risk due to the therapies that they're exposed to. Um, several recent studies have found that uh, these individuals who receive cisplatin, although that drug has improved survival rates from, I believe, like around the 50th percentile up towards like the high 90th percentile. So it has done wonders for treating the treatment of germ cell disease. Uh, the drug actually stays in its active form uh, for 20 plus years post-therapy, presenting a chronic stimulus for endothelial cell dysfunction and premature atherosclerosis development. So we were, the, the master, or sorry, the PhD work was really focused on understanding whether high-intensity interval training um, positively influenced uh, cardiorespiratory fitness, markers of vascular structure and function, uh, and as a carryover, markers of autonomic nervous system function. Uh, from there, I went to uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering with uh, Lee Jones and Jessica Scott in New York uh, for my first postdoc. And there we, we looked at, uh, uh, we took a bit of a different tact in terms of the, the scope of projects that we did, um, but really focused on some larger data sets, some population level data sets, uh, as well as um, doing some reviews 
really sort of looking at the methodological and reporting rigor of exercise oncology trials to date. Uh, and then from there, uh, second fellowship at, uh, at the University of Toronto with that doctors uh, Catherine Savison and Daniel Santamina. Uh, and their work obviously takes more of a, a prehab approach and uh, a behavioral approach. Um, so got some nice complementary training there. So Aaron, uh, I would be curious how you would answer this question since, uh, you know, this is one that, that I've gotten over the years and, uh, I think my answer has changed over time, but the, uh, you know, when you first explain to a colleague or a patient that you are a cardio oncologist, the first question is, what is that? And then, or, or the alternative is, is that they would say, is that cancer in the heart? And uh, so with that as a background, why or how did you uh, see the, the exercise working group sort of expanding our knowledge or understanding or treatments of patients that, that have cardio-oncology problems? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan, I guess. Um, you know, the more what we're really learning about the effects of cancer treatments, um, especially in the cardio-oncology field, is although the heart is um, a key player and is can be um, severely impacted by treatment and associated lifestyle um, changes that occur with following treatment, it's not um, the only uh, impact that we see so we we see the effects of treatment in the muscle we see the effects of treatment in the blood vessels the lungs um, the circulation and so we need to have strategies that can um, target multiple systems and that's one of the key benefits of exercise is that uh, you know there is there's lots of research going on to try and identify what it is about exercise that is beneficial in multiple chronic disease states. And we, we are really, it's an exciting time. We, we're starting to learn a lot um, about these benefits, but we don't fully understand it. And I think that the cardio-oncology setting is really um, you know, the, the ideal place for exercise to be used as medicine to try and target these multi-system impacts of the treatment and the lifestyle and behaviour changes that are, uh, sort of co occur with um, in, in many of our patients. Yeah, that's a great answer. I'm going to have to start incorporating some of that into, into my answer next time. But the, the other part is, is, is you know, we, uh, we really need to, uh, as you've uh, both really address this, that, you know, there it's the whole picture and the, probably the nidus for cardio oncology, at least in my mind was, you know, at, at least initially it came from cancer survivors and, you know, the, the, you know, childhood cancer survivors that lived into adulthood. And, you know, basically when their cancer was treated and, and everything looked good after five years or whatever interval, they were said, they were told, you know, you're cured from your cancer, you know, go live your life. And, you know, I mean, that's a wonderful thing to say. And I do think that it, it is, it, you know, it's truly, 
tremendous that cancer therapy progressed to that level. But on the other hand, you know, what we know about exercise and those patients is it's, it's really awesome how much of an impact exercise could have had or will have in the future because, you know, somebody will decrease their, you know, typical exercise tolerance uh, after cancer therapy dramatically, and they'll never recover it. So, you know, they'll say they're running at a hundred percent before they get, uh, before they get chemotherapy or radiation or whatever treatments afterwards, even if they survive all of that, which hopefully they will, they're running at about 25, 30%. And that's the way they're going to stay the rest of their life. And, uh, you know, that is a profound drop in activity. And, you know, so I think the cancer survivors were really the sort of the nightest for me to really introduce exercise as a, as a therapeutic option in, in these patients. And then, of course, you can relate that to people that are actively being treated for cancer now. Um, and that, that clearly, you know, you don't want people to have that drop in function from a hundred percent to 30%, you know, just because they're, they're receiving cancer therapy. So I, I wonder what you guys think about that. I mean, do you think that that is an important motivation or an important area that we need to focus on or what do you think, Scott? Yeah. Um, it's a great observation and and what you're what you're really tapping into is has confounding effects has knock-on effects right because once the tolerance has been decreased despite the what we believe are the potentially achievable benefits of exercise once that tolerance is increased our capacity to deliver these interventions effectively in this patient group is also diminished so not only is exercise and structured, properly tailored and prescribed exercise important to improving outcomes, it's also a critical factor in enabling the delivery of this intervention. So we, there has to be some an early preconditioning to restore function. And then once that function has been restored, then you can get into the more um, advanced type of training that can really impact vessel remodeling and cardiac remodeling and things that we know will improve long-term outcomes. Uh, but if you don't intervene, then it becomes this negative cascade of deconditioning, sequela, further deconditioning, further com comorbidities. Uh, so exercise not only is likely a great multi-system therapy to, do, to address this, it's also an important precursor to deliver to its own delivery. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it allows the, the patient to get, you know, whatever the optimum therapy is without, without a, you know, hopefully without a side effect. And, you know, so, so both for Aaron and Scott, you know, what kind of research are you currently engaged in? Yeah. Research at the moment is really focusing, as I sort of alluded to earlier, on this intervening early um, in the patient kind of journey. Um, so we've got a few, couple of studies um, running where we're looking at 
really trying to deliver a targeted exercise intervention in patients who are receiving anthracyclines for early stage breast cancer. So we are using a um, periodized exercise approach to periodize their exercise training with their chemotherapy cycles. Um, and we're following these patients over a 12-month period um, with sort of a step down in our um, exercise supervision um, over that 12 months. Um, and that study is looking at whether we can prevent functional disability, which is exactly what you were just talking about, Dan, you know, the, this trajectory, prevent the trajectory occurring of um, patients getting into trouble <laughs> after their treatment and not, not regaining that um, capacity or the reserve um, to go on and lead a, you know, healthy and fulfilling life. Um, and that's, that study is actually wrapping up in the next few months. So we're very excited to analyse that data and get that out there because I think it will be, um, you know, it's a randomised control trial of over 100, um, 100 women, so it'll be a big study um, and contribute to the literature really significantly um, either way. Um, we're also, my, my research is kind of focusing more on the hematological cancers, which are very... Um, haven't really received as much uh, research focus with the sort of cardiotoxicity prevention um, angle, um, but we know these are a group that get hit extremely hard by um, chemotherapy, bed rest, um, and um, in particular we're focusing on allogeneic stem cell transplant patients, which are some of the most um, severely uh, or aggressively treated um, individuals. And we're, again, trying to tailor an exercise and physical activity intervention in this group to be delivered whilst they're um, going through their stem cell transplant, so whilst they're inpatient um, and then um, following them for um, exercising them in the outpatient setting for up for 12 weeks. And, again, looking at whether we can um, prevent functional disability um, we have um, a very novel way of assessing cardiac function at the Baker Institute. We have a um, one of the only research cardiac research um, MRIs in Australia, and we have it set up so that we can actually image the heart during exercise. Um, so that allows us to look um, with very high resolution at. Um, measures like cardiac reserve, so we can really try and tease out what the effects of um, our intervention has been on, on the central components on, on cardiac function um, and, and also learn a lot about how the heart is impacted um, by these treatments. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's very exciting. Super. Yeah, that sounds really unique. And, you know, I mean, I think that when you think about even a you know, otherwise young, healthy patient, uh, who goes to get knee or hip surgery or some other orthopedic thing. And, uh, you know, they got to lay in bed for a week or two or longer, depending on what it is. Uh, you know, their functional status just took a major hit, even if they were perfectly in condition and, uh, you know, how in, in, in the orthopedic world, they, they've come up with strategies for early exercise you know, it's astounding, you know, they'll get somebody up and exercising, you know, 12 hours after having their hip replaced. And you're like, 
Yeah. Wow. I didn't think <laughs> that didn't seem like a good idea, but you know, on the other hand, it, you know, early mobilization makes it just a massive difference. And then, so if you equate that to a uh, stem cell transplant, you know, they, you know, especially during that first seven to 10 days, you know, they're basically hanging out in the room, laying in bed, you know, just kind of suffering through the known side effects of, of the medications they were given. So yeah, that's a, that would be a, a huge, uh, very important area to, to investigate. So I'm glad you're doing it. And then your comment also about, uh, you know, this, the research in the world of cardio-oncology uh, predominantly has been in breast cancer, which it's great because breast cancer is a common cancer, but, you know, there's a lot of other cancers besides breast cancer. And so I think expanding our knowledge base in these other areas is really a, a priority of, of ICOS. So Scott, tell us about what you're up to. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm really excited to see those study findings, Aaron. So looking forward to uh, having those come out. Um, and a, as a little side note, I will say that, you know, so Scott and Aaron, have, you know, set up this working group and all of this. And, and he's got like this 50 page, five-year, 10-year plan. So <laughs> to ask Scott, you know, what he's been up to, you know, be prepared to buckle your seatbelt and get ready. So, and perhaps pull up a pillow in case you need uh, <laughs> something to, to fight some. I'm the succinct one. Sorry. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> a good, a good yin and yang uh, co-chair situation happening here. Um, yeah. So we're uh, perhaps uh, expectedly we're taking, uh, we've got a couple balls in the air right now with mm -hmm. our research. So we're doing some uh, big cohort retrospective analysis from patients that have gone through uh, the Toronto Rehab Institute, uh, looking at whether or not combinations of cancer, cardiovascular disease, uh, or just the presence of CVD risk factors differentially impact cardiac rehab compliance, uh, the outcomes of cardiac rehab, and then whether long-term um, we're going to link it with some provincial data that we've got here um, and whether long-term it changes outcomes, the participation and the compliance changes outcomes in the, in this population. Um, we're also interested, uh, we're just launching um, uh, another pilot study that uh, I'm leading, trying to profile patients a little bit better. There's a, if we, if we look at most of the screening tools for cardiovascular risk screening in oncology, they're really largely focused on heart failure symptoms, right? Heart failure related uh, or predicting heart failure related complications. Uh, but we know that those aren't necessarily the most prevalent forms of cardiac complications in oncology. Um, and we're using tools that predominantly focus on the heart. So we're, we're, uh, I'm just launching a protocol now where it's in, it's in ethics right now where we're using cardiorespiratory fitness, autonomic function, vascular function, cardiac imaging, um, looking at some mitochondrial health markers, um, markers of uh, endothelial function um, to more comprehensively profile patients at baseline, looking at how these factors change by the end of therapy and then using some uh, machine learning to risk model uh, patients for near-term and longer-term outcomes down the road. Um, and then most excitingly, 
Um, we're launching our Himalaya study this week. We're getting our first, uh, we're start, we've launched our recruitment for the Himalayas trial. Uh, the Himalayas trial is a national, uh, randomized trial here in Canada, uh, rolling out at five sites, uh, Vancouver, Edmonton, Toronto, which is the coordinating site, Montreal and Halifax. Uh, and really what we're getting at, uh, with this study is understanding whether, Young adults who have developed stage B, cancer-related stage B heart failure, um, respond well uh, to a traditional cardiac rehab-based intervention. Um, it includes a little high-intensity interval training, a little moderate-intensity exercise with co-pharmacologic co and behavioral support. Um, that's a short-term acute phase intervention over six months, and then we will provide longer-term pharmacologic and behavioral support up to two years post-therapy. That's in the primary RCT, and then for the secondary parallel RCT, uh, we're testing the effects of uh, a, basically a behavioral support intervention by itself uh, to look at, see whether or not there are any comparable Im impacts on uh, cardiospiratory fitness markers of cardiovascular disease risk and cardiac health. Wow, oh, man, these are some, these are some exciting things you guys are working on. Steve. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah yes. I just wanted to jump in with a related sort of treatment question. And my question is how do you dose exercise with these patients? And I'm sure that's a massive question that has a lot of complexities, but it's something that I just keep thinking. I, I mean, with obviously with the drugs and medications, you can dose very carefully. So tell us a little bit about how that works with exercise. Um, it's actually a very, uh, a very astute question and one that uh, we don't know quite yet. The, we don't know the answer to quite yet. So what's happened is to date, the majority, I'll, I'll have to speak in generalities about the exercise oncology literature, uh, because there hasn't been a ton of cardio-oncology exercise mm -hmm. research done today. So in general, in the, in the exercise oncology field, most interventions have focused on delivering um, guideline-based, so 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous, and, or 75 to 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity, um, aerobic exercise. There have been some resistance training studies, but right now um, they've tested this fairly generic prescription. And then a confounding factor is that when you look at the quality of reporting overall in our field, um, it there's a lot of missing information that would be required to really calculate dose response relationships between interventions and the outcomes of interest. Um, so one of the things we're doing is uh, within the working group is to try and establish standards for exercise or cardio oncology exercise and rehab reporting and, and data collection so that we can actually start to get at understanding what the actual dose response relationships are between the different approaches to interventions that we could deliver uh, and outcomes of interest that are specific to key patient populations. Yeah, Aaron, I don't know if you have a favorite approach to how to prescribe, you know, specific exercise to an individual patient. I mean, I don't know if there's some general guide or tool that you use. I guess, 
We're, we're sort of fortunate, both Scott and I, to work in um, institutions that have access to cardiopulmonary exercise testing and um, we uh, are able to individualise our exercise prescription for our patients based on their cardiopulmonary response to exercise. And so we we look at um, determining different factors like their ventilatory, ventilatory thresholds, um, we look at their heart rate responses and we can pro- provide really um, you know, precise um, exercise prescriptions. Now, that doesn't always work in cancer patients because um, the treatments can, you know, play havoc with their hemodynamic stability. So it's actually quite difficult to rely on heart rate to accurately prescribe um, exercise intensity as we would normally for many other Um, chronic health conditions so um, our group uses a combination of different things we if we're exercising people um, we do a lot of um, cycle based exercise and that's because we measure our outcomes on a bike and we do you know it's all sort of geared towards our research but um that's also helpful because we can use watts um, to prescribe exercise intensity Um, but you know in the field using Um, perceived exertion is um, probably the most commonly used approach and and that's sort of what's recommended in the guidelines again is that um, a moderate intensity um, exercise prescription is a a, an RPE of about 13 and a a hard to vigorous is sort of the 15 to 16 um, RPE scale and and I think they they work quite well if you've got a patient that understands um, the concept of what you're um, trying to, uh, yeah, that understands the concept of the intensity and, and that can be a little bit challenging for some individuals, but um, in general it's it's um, the approach that we use. The other point that I would make is kind of what Scott was talking to, speaking about earlier, is that, um, you know, for some of these patients, especially the stem cell transplant guys and those who have been in bed rest or ICU and things like that, then it is really just um, prehab sort of focused exercise where you're trying to get them mobilising, get them active, um, doing really functional type tasks to um, precondition them to be then able to start an actual structured exercise program. Um, that's certainly a, an aspect of working with um cancer patients at different stages of their journey. Beautiful. So, uh, and this question will be to, to each of you, but uh, I could, we can start with Scott. The, uh, you know, can you can you kind of give us a brief overview of what the, what the current evidence is that you know exercise therapy may be helpful in these in cardio oncology patients? You know, where where do you see the current status yeah um so i think like i like i alluded to earlier um there isn't a ton of cardio-oncology specific research that's been done yet and by that i mean selectively targeting populations with known high cvd risk profiles and then really tailoring interventions to address the specific mechanisms of injury and deficits within that population. Most of the evidence to date is within more heterogeneous patient populations um, where they may all be 
individuals with, say, breast cancer or hematologic disease, uh, but a mixed group, not just high-risk individuals with higher exposures to anthracyclines and thoracic rads and such. Um, so if we're generalizing from that evidence base, certainly we know that there's robust evidence to say that exercise improves cardiorespiratory fitness. Uh, the perhaps not widely known um, implication there is that this this outcome, cardiorespiratory fitness, seems to be a, a robust independent predictor of mortality uh, in this in this population, and that's something that we need to focus on more as a primary intervention outcome. Uh, beyond that, however, um, most there have been very few studies to date that have specifically targeted other competing mechanisms of cardiovascular risk in a homogeneous patient population. Uh, and of the studies that have been done today, um, I would say those types of outcomes have been more secondary. So the studies haven't necessarily been properly powered to address the effects of the interventions on these outcomes. Um, so while I think there's really exciting early evidence that exercise can improve vascular structure and function and autonomic reactivity and certainly met, um, hormone and metabolic profiles, uh, as well as perhaps blunting some of the adverse uh, cardiac effects um, in, in these patients, uh, we haven't had the large the large definitive trials done in this area yet, um, which isn't negative. It just indicates that we're early days in the field. Um, there's a lot of really important work left to be done. Um, yeah. No, that's a great summary. So Aaron, how do you, how do you see the current field? Because obviously the two studies that you, that you told us about that, that you're, you know, primarily doing, uh, there, you're attempting to address specific questions. So that doesn't mean that your, your research is going to answer every question, but those are, those are the ones that you kind of pick now. Uh, so where do you see the field at this moment? Yeah, I, I think um, we, we've picked these um, sort of surrogate endpoints in our study like Scott just mentioned, cardiorespiratory fitness, cardiac reserve, measures that we know that are related to long-term outcomes in other populations and, and have been shown in cancer patients as well to predict mortality. But we, we need to figure out if um, these interventions are going to have um, changed long-term outcomes for our cancer patients, and I think that's really what I'd love to see um, and, you know, hope that through ICOS, through this working group, we'll have the opportunity to try and answer these bigger questions of um, that, that are going to require, you know, large numbers of patients um, with, uh, you know, studies that are sort of using, you know, consistency across outcome measures and interventions to be able to try and answer what, what's happening um, to long-term outcomes. Um, I mean, I, I think even... If looking at preclinical models, the the evidence is not even super strong in and and still emerging in in that um, respect as well because it is so challenging to create uh, an animal model where you can injure you can have a tumor you can give them chemo give them docs um, and then get them to exercise. I think um, it's a lot. You know, we, we're we're going to try and do that ourselves in um, Melbourne, but. 
Um, I think I'm, I'm not sure if why it hasn't already been done, but I'm assuming it might be a bit challenging. But to even get those, you know, models um, set up to try and answer it in the preclinical setting is, is seems challenging. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time, and I think we've got um, this is a great platform for us to try and answer these big big questions together. Yeah, I think that you know strength in numbers, no doubt. But the the other part is is that you know, and I think the entire world of cardio oncology is in this space. But when you uh, when you are diagnosed with cancer, so let's say one of us was diagnosed with cancer, and you know, you see your doctor, and they say you're going to get ABC. It's going to take a year and a half, two years, you know, to do, you know, the chemo and radiation surgery, you know, whatever combination of things. And at the end of all that, you know, maybe we'll give you good news. I mean, that's basically what happens, you know, when a patient has a, a diagnosis of cancer. So your whole focus is on that. It's on, on cancer. And, you know, to, to change your focus not so much. Of course, we don't want to lose sight of treating the cancer. Actually, we want to make, we want patients to be in better shape and better able to tolerate that really rigorous treatment. I mean, one and a half, two years worth of, you know, various treatments is devastating. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have to kind of move your focus from not just the cancer, but, you know, what's the collateral damage that's going to happen and how can we minimize that? And, and certainly cardiac issues are the biggest car collateral damage. So in one sense, you could say cardio-oncology is like, <laughs> it's kind of like the ultimate support team. You know, we want to, we want to make the, you know, situation as good as possible so that this patient can then get through this very vigorous problem. And so, you know, I think that, you know, your own personal studies that you guys are doing are wonderful. And, and you know, we really look forward to, you know, not only finding out what your, what your research does, but also, you know, how you can pull the, the rest of us along to, to, to advance this space. So I have a, before we uh, jump off, I have another um, treatment related question. And that is, is there any evidence that exercise during cancer therapies increases the efficacy of the therapy itself? Great, uh, great question. One of the, the first studies that I really got interested in um, was, was an animal model looking at exactly that. They had um, implanted tumors into mice and um, trained them. And I guess, I think, I believe the intention of this study was to address early concerns as to whether or not exercise increased the growth rate of tumors. So not only did they find that um, there was no difference in the tumor mass uh, uh, externally, um, they found uh, the accidental finding was 
that once they had administered doxorubicin, the tumors in the exercise animal shrunk more. And upon autopsy, they found that the vascularity of those tumors had improved. So when you think of tumor growth, um, there are, are, because it's erratic and irregular, there are large pockets of tumor bodies that are um, hypoxic. There's irregular blood vessel distribution throughout them. And when you get these hypoxic pockets of tumors, systemic therapies like chemotherapy can't actually reach those areas of the tumor as effectively. But via normalizing the tumor vasculature with exercise, a higher percentage or higher surface area of the tumor was actually exposed to the therapies and therefore decreased, shrunk better once those therapies were were um, introduced. And I know Lee Jones um, is leading a, a, a fairly aggressive line of research in this field. I know there's some work done in Scandinavia as well um, that have looked at the cancer-related effects of exercise in normalizing tumor microenvironment, um, the, the tumor itself, as well as its microenvironment that could potentially arrest or mitigate the growth of, of these, uh, these various diseases. And I know Alison Bitoff Warner from, from Sloan Kettering as well. I think she, she had data that there was a, a model that tested four different groups. Uh, one was exercise plus therapy, uh, one was therapy only, one was exercise only, and one was control. Uh, and they found that there was a synergistic effect between the exercise there, the exercise and anti-cancer therapy group, where they had a greater reduction in tumor volume, whereas the exercise by itself and the chemotherapy by itself had a similar effect on reducing tumor growth rate over time. Um, so I think there are some really uh, compelling early wins in that area uh, and a lot of really important work left to do there as well. Super. Well, Scott and Aaron, thank you both so much for giving us your time. This has been a, a really fascinating conversation. I think we could spend a couple more hours together, uh, but we really appreciate your time um, and the research that you're doing and the encouragement to continue to to press into these areas that are uh, new and developing, but super helpful. So thanks. Thank you both for being with us today. Yeah. Thank you both Aaron and Scott. Uh, we appreciate all your efforts and uh, we're excited to see what kind of developments you guys are leading. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity and, and all the support you've given us so far. This is tremendous. Yeah. Great. Thanks a lot guys. For more information about ICOS, you can go to ic-os.org, where you'll find more information about all of our programs, including our weekly webinars, our board certification exam, and other resources that we know you'll find helpful. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to hear from you soon.